Domestic violence does not discriminate. Doesn't care what race you are, whether you're rich or poor, man or woman. If you've been the victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. They have a multitude of resources to help you and hope for a better tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of Real Crime NYC with Chris, Bill, and Pat. In today's episode, we talk about the murder of a Staten Island mom and school teacher who went missing without explanation. The investigation takes dozens of twists and turns before the deadly truth is told. There's good old-fashioned detective interrogation, video evidence, license plate readers, domestic violence, cadaver dogs, you name it, this case has it. And I promise you'll never look at your kid's teacher or your mailman the same way again. Before we get into it, please hit subscribe, like, and comment on Real Crime NYC. Okay, guys, what do you got? Pat, this case starts out as a missing person on Staten Island. At midnight on Tuesday, April 12th, the missing woman's boyfriend walks into the precinct and reports that he had last seen her on Saturday, and all attempts to contact her have gone unsuccessful. So imagine being the detective. It's midnight on a Tuesday, and you're sitting in your office, and you're getting ready to leave at 1 in the morning. And this guy walks in and says his girlfriend's missing. She's a school teacher. She's supposed to have been in court the day before on a divorce proceeding with her ex-husband. About custody of her children. Yeah, about custody of their children. They have two children together, and she doesn't report in to the court on that Monday. So her lawyer's calling the boyfriend and saying, you know, where is she? Yeah. So this comes in as what we refer to as a category G missing. And that's when an adult, a capable adult who has no infirmities is reported missing. And there's really no explanation. There's no intention of the person to go anywhere that anyone knows of. There's no suspected foul play at that point, but it's enough for the police to start an investigation because there's no explanation why this responsible adult is missing. Right. There's a lot of common sense used by the detective. And I think one of the first things they want to know here is the guy that reported her missing. When was the last time you seen her? Well, there's more that enters it. It wasn't just good common sense. The first thing they'll do is they'll run her name through our databases and they come up with the fact that there have been numerous police contacts, domestic violence responses to her home. You know, I think there was seven or eight of them. On most of those contacts, the ex-husband is listed as the offender. On some of them, she's listed as the offender. And the current boyfriend who's reporting her missing now, detectives have questions regarding his past. He had some contact with the police also uh, in the past. I mean, he's had some, uh, what we would call a violation order of protection, a stalking. Nobody's kind of squeaky clean here in this once you dig down into it. But you start to form a picture of the person that's missing and you say, hmm, She's been involved in a bunch of disputes. She's going through a divorce. She misses her job at the public school that day. She doesn't appear for an appearance in family court for custody of her kid. All right, now that's a lot more than just uh, taking a hunch. Now we're suspecting something's going on here. One thing they found odd on Sunday, a boyfriend and a roommate received a Facebook message saying that, I'm okay, I just need a break. And this was odd because she doesn't use social media. This is out of the norm. And we always know if something's out of the normal, there's more to it. That's a red flag right there for any detective, especially if she hadn't used that app in quite a while. All of a sudden, there's a message explaining her 
absence. And uh, we all know what that's about. That's the cover of tracks. So what does a detective do next? One of the first things they're going to do is find out when was the last time she was seen alive? When was the last time somebody spoke to her? That's really important because that's where they'll begin their search. And what he says is he last saw her on Saturday and she was going to her ex-husband's house to see the kids and to also serve him with court documents. Not only was it just court documents, it was financial papers as well that she was looking for money from him. And they have a history of violence. The other question you ask him is, what's going on in her life right now? Is she arguing with the ex-husband? Is she arguing with anybody? Does she have a problem with anybody? And once the detectives ask those questions, all the indicators point that there's something more than just a routine missing here. Yeah, and important to note, the ex-husband actually has custody of the young children. I think they were seven and three, which is a little out of the norm. Usually the mother would have especially younger children. But in this case, the ex-husband had the children. So that would be a legitimate reason for her to go there and speak with him. Once those red flags are raised, you have detectives inside the squad room looking up information on all the people involved. And you also have detectives in the field looking for her and speaking to people. There's a lot of steps that a detective's going to start taking before he even gets out and hits the pavement. We're going to check all of our electronic means of tracking someone. We're going to ask, because now she's missing, we're afraid something happened. We're going to try to ping her phone, see where that phone has been pinging, might locate her that way. We're going to look at, from his desk, he can look at license plate readers. So if she has a car with a license plate, we're going to see where that car went. She has debit cards, credit cards. We're going to try to see if we can find any usage. All of these things are taking place while they're formulating a plan to find this woman. Detectives are going to go to a residence. They're going to do an emergency exception search of the residence looking for her to try to find her alive. Well, the first thing in every missing persons case, as we know from earlier cases we discussed, you have to search every inch of that person's residence before you start looking other places because sometimes you find them right there in the house. She lived in Staten Island, and her ex lived in the Rockaway, Queens. And the boyfriend lives in Staten Island also. So now you have different detective boroughs involved. So you have Staten Island Detective Borough working with Queens Detective Borough, which the two chiefs really coordinated well on this. So they had detectives from Queens doing legwork in Queens, and they'll go to the ex-husband's house. They'll look for video. They'll look to speak to people in and around the apartment that the ex-husband lived in. And what they realize is he's working. He's a postal worker. He works in Manhattan. So they send detectives to his uh, work address in Manhattan. They bring him back to a detective squad in Manhattan, and they want to talk to him. They gave a brief interview in Manhattan, and then later on, they brought him back to the one-to-one. He comes right out, and he says, I'll give you a buckle swab. I'll do a polygraph test. And, you know, this is what happened. I saw her. She came to the house. She wanted to see the kids. I went in the car with her. I took a ride. And he comes up with some crazy explanation of what happened. He was saying something to the effect as they had sexual intercourse. Then she dropped him off. The next day, he sees her again. They had sexual intercourse again. They met at a Dunkin' Donuts. And then he kind of caught himself. And then he invoked his right to counsel and said, you know, let me stop. Yeah, he was yeah, plenty cool at first. He was plenty cool. He was developing a story, which he was probably doing for the past two, two or three days. But once he started getting pressed, he started forgetting what part of the stories he was telling. He started changing his story. There was no consistency. And that's what really did him in. And then once he realized that, I better request a lawyer. This isn't going good for me. Yeah, at one point, he actually admits that he 
assaulted her, that he punched her, right? Punched her he, in the face? Yeah, he said that uh, she presented him with uh, court documents. He owed money for uh, child support. And when she presents him with the court papers, that's when he said he struck her. So once he says that, detectives now have him on an assault charge. He's admitting that he struck her. And I think he went down that rabbit hole. He's kind of locking himself into a story. Yeah, that's useful. And the detectives have to capitalize on it. But that's paper thin. You have the guy admitting that he struck this missing woman. You don't have the woman. You don't have the, any injuries on her because you don't have her. All you have is this guy saying he struck her. Probably not going to repeat it. He's lawyered up at this point. But shame on those detectives if they don't use that to their advantage. And I think in this case, they ended up doing just that. Right. Yeah, I think they, in his mind, he, he thinks that I, I give them a little bit. They're not going to suspect me as the murderer. I'm telling them I'm guilty of a simple assault, which he has priors. They have a domestic violence history. He's probably not afraid of an assault arrest. But in his mind, he thinks, hey, they'll never find the body. They'll never know where she is. So I'll just admit to an assault and they'll believe me. But at some point, the sharp work of the detective's interview skills really press him enough where he can't get out of his the tangled web he, he made. And all while they're doing that, they're collecting the abandonment sample, the water bottle. They're locking him into statements. They're checking video to see, does it match up to what he's saying? And all along, they're realizing, this guy's lying. He's coming up with some fictitious story. Well, what he's trying to do is weave you know, some fiction in among some points of truth that he's telling. And, and a lot of times the suspects will do that. And they get to a point where they find what they've said to be unmanageable to themselves and keep it going. You know, they weave this web and all of a sudden they realize, I, I can't keep this up. But in this case, there's a really good key piece of investigative opportunity here. And that's because she's missing from Staten Island. And to go to Jersey to the west or to go to Brooklyn to the east, there are bridges to get off that island. It is an island. So you're going to have uh, license plate reader hits, and you're going to have tolls. So if you check those things, you know, you could trace, you know, I would want to know where, where, where were these people's cars and what license plate readers are they hitting off of? You just hit it. Where were their cars? And that's why I mentioned earlier about the detectives in Queens, the detectives in Staten Island coordinating this investigation together, the legwork that the detectives in Queens did. They find out where he lives. Let's find video. But remember, the last time that she was seen alive, she's saying she's going to the ex's apartment in Queens. Let's find video of her when she arrived there. Let's find out what happened. And did she ever leave? Exactly. They end up finding video of her when she gets there. He goes to her car. And we have a point of where we last seen her. It was a Saturday night. We have her and the ex together. We know she's still alive, and she's last seen on video with her ex. In that's the car it, in front of his address. Exactly. Yeah. The, that, the that's license it. plate readers tell us that she passed over the Veranzano Bridge the whole route. She took the, uh, the Belt Parkway, and she ends up going over the bridge into the Rockaways. Then, like you said, Bill, now we look at the video, and she's in the car in front of the residence the last time anyone could place her alive. But there's some other things that happen that are quite suspicious. They read almost exactly like one of our prior cases uh, when you look at the video from the residence, right? I think you know which one we're talking about, Betty in a bag. Right. You're seeing additional information on that video. 
he's carrying garbage bags. There's a woman in in the video too, going back and forth. So a shopping did, cart with a heavy she, object in it in a bag. So you're like, well, if her car's going back and forth, she she had to still be alive on that Sunday. But we're seeing shopping bags and carts going up and down from the ex's apartment. They still don't have, you know, but which shop investigator realizes they're seeing the car. They're not seeing who's driving the car. The car and the person, you have to remember, are two distinctly different things. Even in some of the paperwork I read, it refers to her traveling over the bridge because the car is hitting a license plate reader over the bridge. That's not exactly accurate. The car is traveling over the bridge. We don't know who's driving it. Maybe if she passes through the toll, you might get a photo of who's driving the car, but you might not. So a good detective always knows, like you said, Chris, the car being somewhere or the cell phone being somewhere does not equal the person being there. It's a good indication, but it's it's not rock solid. Yeah, one thing you could determine if there's a difference in driving patterns, if uh, the owner of the car drives a certain way, certain speed, certain types of braking normally, and then you get the computer and they're able to determine the speed is different, the driving pattern is different, the braking is different. It's not probative, but it's an indicator that somebody different is driving the vehicle. With the new cars today, the technology is so sharp, you can figure that out pretty pretty quickly, especially with the, the higher-end cars. People so, don't realize that little black box in your in your car has a lot of information in it. And I don't think the auto manufacturers actually want people to know that because they don't want to be on the hook for all these court cases and, and going into the black boxes and getting the information. But in the NYPD, at least, we know how to hook up to those boxes and get that information. And that would be great. But in this situation, we don't have our car. So we don't have her. We don't have a car. There's a problem. So we've been successful so far in tracking some of that car's movements through license plate reader hits, right? So I believe what they did at that point was they asked one of the NYPD units that have license plate readers on all their RMPs, our police vehicles, to go out and do a grid search in Staten Island. Basically drive up and down every block in Staten Island, hoping that that license plate reader will alert them that, hey, you just passed the car we're looking for. And they do that grid search and they don't find the car. But what do we know at this point? So it's, it gets a little convoluted. There's a lot of twists and turns here. So just let's recap. You have a 37-year-old female school teacher with two young children going through a divorce. She misses a court taste about the custody of her children who are in the custody of the ex-husband. The lawyers start calling around. Her co-workers start calling around because she missed work. And the boyfriend, her current boyfriend, reports her missing that night. Says, hey, we don't know where she is. She missed a court date. This is out of the realm. But the little golden nugget here, all of a sudden they get a, a message on a social media app, Facebook, I think it was, saying, I just need a little time to myself. I got a lot going on. Very uncharacteristic. That's number one for the detectives. Hey, something's going on here. But as detectives all know, 99% of the people that are murdered are murdered by someone close to them. So all the people involved here are very close to each other. But it's just a matter of sorting it out for the detectives. Chris, why don't you take us through a timeline starting on Saturday night when they're both seen in Queens at the ex-husband's house? Saturday night at 9.52, we have her arriving at his apartment, like Billy said. Then we have the ex-husband and the new girlfriend 
entering her vehicle. At a few moments later, the car drives away. At 10.39, the car returns. We believe somewhere between 9.51 and 10.39, they get into an argument in the car, and the ex-husband punches her, knocking her out. At 11.01, we have Michael entering his apartment, and five minutes later, returning with black garbage bags and the shopping cart, which is an indicator right there that there's a problem. Okay, at 11.35, Michael enters the rear of the car, and he's fumbling around with the trunk. At 11.41, we have Michael and the girlfriend walking back to the apartment, pulling a heavy shopping cart. Now, you can't see what's in the cart. All you can see is black bags, but you can see it's very, very heavy, and he's pulling it up a flight of stairs, which is indicative of possibly a human body being in there, something very heavy. If I'm not mistaken, they actually pulled the car up to the back of the building and used a back entrance too, didn't they? They did. And his girlfriend's wearing rubber gloves as they're moving this cart. One other important piece here, which comes in in play later on, Sunday morning at 10.55, same video camera, you see the the ex-husband and the new girlfriend exiting the apartment with a, a big blue plastic tub, very heavy, and they carrying it out of the apartment, and they start dragging it down the stairs. They go and get a dolly, and we see him on video pulling it towards the car. And that's the kind of tub that you would use for to put ice and beer like in. Like a big beer Like container. a big like a, for a blue plastic tub with the, the white rope handles on it. But you still never seen our victim, and you don't have a body. Yeah, and you still don't have a body. So now the priority is, you could say hope against hope that she's still alive at this point. But as a detective, when I see that garbage bag and the wagon going up into that apartment, you could pretty much assume that she's dead at this point. But just on the chance that she's still alive, I mean, the number one priority at this point is find her, dead or alive. We need to find that body or her alive. And number two, now we want to keep track of the ex-husband. If he's our lead suspect, we don't want him disappearing into the wind. So there's two priorities going on there. Find the body to prove the case, and let's not let let this guy skip away before we can make the case. You want to search his apartment, and there was a conferral done with the district attorney, and the district attorney made the wise choice along with the NYPD legal bureau was the emergency exception's over, and you have to apply for a search warrant to get into his apartment. And that's exactly what they did. And don't forget, there's a woman on that video when you see him going up and down with the bag and the cart. Who's that woman? That woman ends up being his current girlfriend. So the ex-husband's current girlfriend looks like she's assisting with this yeah. wagon, the heavy bag, and she's wearing gloves. Right. So now there has to be a discussion on, is she accomplice or do we leverage her and try to question her being a witness? She is an accomplice and we're going to use that against her and get her to testify against her boyfriend. Either also- both of go down for this or you help us and he goes down and at this point, the detectives aren't even sure that she knows where the body is. He could have went and disposed of that body himself without her. On that Sunday, our victim, you see her car going over the Verrazano Bridge, and you also see his car going over the Verrazano Bridge, one in front of the other. And I think at this point in the investigation, they realize that our victim wasn't driving her car. So who was driving her car? It must have been his girlfriend. We want to question her. We want to know what she knows. You're going to pull her in. You're going to talk to her. You're going to tell her, hey, we got it. We know what went on here. You got to help yourself. We know he did it. Help yourself. Tell us exactly what happened. Lay it out and get the best deal you can for yourself. That's exactly what they do. 
So they get her into the precinct. And what I find the most disturbing about this case is she goes through exactly what happened. She said the victim pulls up to the ex-husband's apartment, the current girlfriend and the perp go downstairs to the car. The ex-husband sits in the car and the victim presents him with the court papers. He gets upset and he hits her and he knocks her unconscious. So he makes a decision. Instead of getting a help, he goes back up to the apartment and he gets a black plastic bag and puts our victim in the black plastic bag. Brings well, she's that- not that cold at this time and he believed that he thought he killed her at this point. He brings yeah, the- I, I, th- I think the present girlfriend of the ex-husband was trying to minimize the severity of what happened. And she's saying, well, he punched her and knocked her out. When in fact, there might have been more that went on there and she might have not just been knocked out. But we don't know at this point. He puts her in a black plastic bag and brings her up to the apartment. Now, what we find out later is not only are her two children up there, seven and three, but the current girlfriend has four children. So there's six kids up in that apartment and they bring a plastic bag with a woman in it. That tells me two things. Either he thought she was dead and he was putting her in that plastic bag while he decided what to do with the body, or he knew she was unconscious and he had already decided that he was going to kill her. And therefore, she goes in his plastic bag up to the apartment. But you're right. How egregious is this? He's bringing her up there in a plastic bag and casting her aside in the apartment like so much trash. But now she wakes up. She opens the bag. She's up. And he hits her over the head again. And what we believe is there's a claw hammer that was recovered from the apartment, and he whacks her over the head with the claw hammer. Seals up the bag again. The girlfriend wakes up in the morning. Where is she? He said, oh, she went home. She got up and she went home. Now, do we believe that story? Is it- She's trying to back herself out of it, give him all the liability and, and lessen her liability here. And we have to remember this video. We saw him bringing this plastic bag in a wagon up into the apartment. If he left that apartment, whether the present girlfriend knew about it or not, it's going to be on that video. Yeah, and she says, hey, I, I don't know what was in the bag. I was afraid, so I didn't ask. What the hell is she thinking? This is her boyfriend who she lives with. They all have minor children, and she's just sitting there while he's punching her unconscious and putting her in a bag and secreting her in the apartment. The first thing you know that enters my mind, why didn't she just get her kids and get the hell out of there at that point? So, Chris, after he puts it back in the car, what does he do with the black bag, and where does he go? Yeah, Bill, we, we believe Sunday night, boyfriend goes into the, the Chevy Cruze with the missing girl in the trunk, followed by the minivan driven by the girlfriend. They go over to Verrazano Bridge. They go through Staten Island. They go into New Jersey. We have the missing cell phone pinging in South Brunswick uh, that night. They get onto the turnpike. They drive southbound on the turnpike, leave the exit three, either two or three, she wasn't sure, and they remove the missing from car, and they pour gasoline on her in like a fire pit, like a barbecue area, and they, they try to set her on fire. And, and she was really burnt really bad, but not to the part, not to the point where it was a cremation. You know, they realized they're not going to turn this body into ashes. When she was discovered, she was so badly burned, she was unrecognizable. I mean, she was so badly burned, either he cut her fingers off or they burned off her toes. I mean, it was unrecognizable. Yeah, they had to use dental records to identify her. Um, so once the fire is put out, now they still have a body. They put it back in the bag. They put it back in the tub. And they 
put it back in the car and they have no place to go. So they bring it back to Staten Island. Million dollar this- question. Hold on. Million dollar question. Why? They burned her in Jersey to the point where she's unrecognizable. Why are you bringing it back to Staten Island? Panic. Did they ever give an let's, answer for that? Let's, let's paint a little bit of a picture here about what's probably going on in the minds of these two people. You got to remember, I would assume this is the first time they've been involved in any kind of a murder. They don't know what they're doing. They're nervous as hell. They're afraid. Now, whether you believe it or not, the girlfriend's saying she's afraid she might be next. But what they do know is they're in Queens. They have a body and they have the car that belongs to that body at their house. They know two things. We got to get rid of this body and we got to get rid of that car. So what do they decide to do? We're going to take the car back to Staten Island where it belongs. And it's going to look like she drove it. The victim drove it. But it's really the girlfriend, the present girlfriend of the ex-husband driving it. He's driving the car with the body in it. And we can assume that because this video of him loading the black plastic bag into the back of the car again. So now think about it. They're in a panic mode. They don't know what to do. They're not experts at this. They're driving around aimlessly, and they decide, go to Jersey. It's another state. It's rural in parts. You know, there'll be a place where we can stop and maybe dispose of the body. They have no idea about disposing of a human body and the heat it takes to actually turn it to ash. So they think they're going to pour some gasoline on it, and boom, the body's gone. We're done. They try it. It doesn't work. You think they were in a panic before? Now they're really panicking. And now they have a burnt body that they're packing up again, putting back in the car, and then they go back to Staten Island. So pick up there. But this is there's no normalcy to this. This is and, chaotic. And they bring this is it, a panic. And they bring it to a storage unit that's registered under the husband's name. Crazy. I wonder what the end game was here. There I almost, was none. It wasn't thought out. This was panic. This was pure panic at that point. But what we've learned about perps, when perps do a crime, they always go back to an area that they're comfortable with, someplace they know. It's just force of habit. They're comfortable with it. So they'll always resort back to some familiarity. And he didn't know what to do at this point. He's confused. He's panicking. He says, let me spring to the storage facility. I go buy myself some time until I can figure out what I'm going to do with her. They bring her back to the storage facility. It was, I believe, Wednesday night. That Wednesday night, we get a Crime Stopper tip amongst a hundred other Crime Stoppers tips because everybody's looking for her. And something about this one stood out. And it, Bill, if you remember, we were in the one twelve squad that night. On the way home, we said, "Let's just stop at the facility. Let's just do a quick search." So we got, we were able to get access to the facility. Nobody's working. It's the middle of the night, and we called the uh, canine Timoshenko down. Again, same dog we use all the time. Cadaver and dog. The, he's a cadaver dog. Um, he's on his way home also. So he's off duty. He comes. By far, one of the best cadaver dogs. He handled so many important cases for us. His handler, phenomenal. Yeah, Benny's one of the best. Yeah, Abs- Benny, Benny and Timoshenko. That canine cadaver dog is actually named after a police officer named Russell Timoshenko, who died in the line of duty in Brooklyn South uh, some years ago. And there's a history in the NYPD. We name our vessels, our boats, and uh, sometimes our mounted units and our, our canines in honor of our uh, our dead police officers. And Russell Timoshenko was a hero in the NYPD, and that dog is named for him. So Benny and Timmy meet us at the storage facility. It's probably about 1, 2 in the morning, and we start doing a search throughout the facility. It's a massive facility, and the dog immediately picks up a uh, cadaver scent. 
and the dog starts searching. He's going floor to floor, through the stairwell, floor to floor, and he's actually trailing all over the, the facility, and uh, we're trying to figure out why. He's hitting. We know he was hitting. Benny knew he was hitting, but we couldn't figure out why he didn't have a direct hit. Uh, then at some point, we realized all of his hits are on a air conditioner stack. So Benny realized that the scent was being sent throughout the whole facility, and he had to do other tactics with the dog to, to narrow it down. It took about maybe 45 minutes, an hour, and uh, the dog wound up hitting on unit 1066. And it was a significant hit. So Benny was confident that something was inside. At this point, we went to the the, uh, the home of the manager of the unit, of the uh, facility, and uh, woke him up and asked him to come back to work. He came back to work. Uh, he gave us access to uh, um, the records. And when he ran that unit's owner, sure enough, he came back to the missing's ex-husband. It gets better. We were also able to view the video. And we found that a couple of days prior, I believe it was on Monday, we see through the loading dock, the ex-husband pull up in the minivan, open up his trunk, his tailgate, and pull out that blue tub with the black garbage bags in it. And he carries it to his unit. So right there, we knew what we had. Um, we stop everything, call the district attorney's office. We get an emergency search warrant. We wake the judge up at home. And somewhere around 5, 6 in the morning, he signs the search warrant. We cut the lock open. And when we opened up the, the lift gate to the unit, we see the tub. We see the black bags inside the tub. And we see probably about, I'll say about 10 air fresheners, like the cone-shaped air fresheners you would have in your in your bathroom spread throughout the whole unit trying to throw off the scent. I took a, a medical scalpel, and I just very delicately cut open the black bag along the seam, just trying not to disturb any evidence on the bag. And I got hit with the decomposition smell right away, and I knew there was a body in there. So at that point, we just froze everything, notified the medical examiner, notified crime scene, and we handled that whole scene very systematic, very methodical, very, very precise. So... Uh, we were able to get his DNA off of that bag at the uh, at the end of the day. So just to clarify it a little, he had already been in to speak to detectives. He had spoken a little bit, offered to, to do a polygraph and a, give a DNA sample, and then lawyered up. So he was arrested for that paper-thin assault three after he had already lawyered up. So the detectives were not, you know, ruining the case in any way by placing him under arrest because he had already invoked his right to counsel. Normally you want to bring someone in and talk to them when they're not under arrest. In this case, he had already invoked his right to an attorney. So there was no downside to bringing him in. At least they knew where he was. He couldn't flee the jurisdiction and he was at their fingertips at this point. So one thing I want to point out is once he invoked his right to counsel, he never did provide his DNA. We collected it through an abandonment sample from a cup that he drank out of. And as far as the polygraph test, he never took it. Right. So one of the controversial things in detective work is collection of DNA and abandonment samples, as we call them, are very controversial these days. Uh, you have the, uh, the legal aid, the defense bar, arguing that that is a seizure and should be done by court order. And then you have you know, the detective side of it and the prosecutor side of it, and actually the case law at this point, uh, saying that once you abandon something, you have no right to privacy over it. So in this case, he was offered something to drink in the detective squad while he was being interrogated. 
And once he invoked his right to counsel and he was taken out of that room, we retrieved that cup and took the DNA sample from the cup that he had drank from. So in other cases, that could make or break your case. And at that point in time, the detectives didn't know what they had or whether it would be relevant, but they were smart to do it anyway. Well, what was more important was actually the victim's DNA because her blood, when they do the search warrant and crime scene processed his apartment, they end up finding her blood on a wall. She actually left behind an evidence marker of her blood. Yeah, she helped the detectives solve her own murder. Unintentionally, or we don't know. Maybe it was intentional. You know, what we don't have is her car. We did that grid search. We didn't find it. Where is her car? Yeah, so about um, a few days later, uh, we get a call from Chester County PD, which is just outside Philadelphia. They found the car in a uh, backside street parked, and uh, somebody reported it that it was suspicious. And when they ran the uh, license plate, there was a uh, an I-card out for the car, and they, they notified us right away. We went down and so, the de- so the detectives had put an alarm on the vehicle, hadn't found it yet, put an alarm. Put the alarm and on, someone right. in another state runs that vehicle, the tag on that vehicle, and boom, there's an alarm on it. Hey, NYPD wants this vehicle. If you find it, safeguard it and call us. And another sad part about the case is, you know, those two kids, they no longer have a mother or father, and the father's in jail. The mother's dead. And ACS, the Administration for Children's Services, end up taking custody of those kids and placing them into uh, with a family that will take care of them. What about the girlfriend's four children? Were they removed also? ACS removed them as well. I mean, she's an accomplice. The district attorney ended up charging her with manslaughter, and she pled out to nine years in prison plus five years post-release supervision. Any ex-husband, he was convicted of murder in addition to tampering and concealing with a corpse and he's serving a 23 years to life sentence. So a tragic story, a mailman going to jail for murder and a school teacher and mother murdered never to see her children again. And that's that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Real Crime NYC, sponsored by AMC Media. Hit subscribe and follow us for free access to our most up-to-date episodes. You can find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. And we'll see you when we see you.